From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It was like a light switch turned on after years of depression made worse by the pandemic. One woman shares her journey with electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. And I remember one of my nurses said to me, well, you're very peppy today. And I had never in my life had someone say that I was peppy. We explore the recent advancements in ECT and ask if it's too good to be true. I want to be very careful. ECT is not a panacea. I'm very passionate about it. It's not something that everyone ought to do. Then Harold Henthorne seemed like a nice guy. Now he's in prison for pushing his wife off a cliff. The case often seems stranger than fiction. It's now a new docuseries. Hi, this is Alan from Golden. CPR is just so worthy that I felt really good about giving up my car to them. I donated my battered SUV and CPR was able to receive more than three times what I would have gotten for it if I had just traded it in. Learn how to make your own impact with the vehicle donation on the support page at CPR.org. Many people already struggling with anxiety and depression say their problems intensified during the pandemic. That sent us looking for solutions that have helped people cope with these issues in meaningful ways. One old therapy has made major advances over the years. It's called ECT, or electroconvulsive therapy. CPR's Andrea Dukakis met a patient at Long's Peak Hospital in Longmont, who's gone through ECT over the past year. Hannah Wyatt-Sultan started the treatments after medication and talk therapy couldn't successfully treat her depression of many years. It's an understatement to say the last year has been an odyssey for Hannah. She let me follow her recently for her last ECT treatment. Hannah's doctor, Kanoi Mandel, was like a proud father. The amount of courage that this young gal had to even embark on this is incredible. Most young people would literally, unfortunately, suffer for years, for years before calling me. So there's no prize for suffering. No prize for (laughs) suffering. Bingo. None. Dr. Mandel and Hannah's nurses say there wasn't a lot of laughing going on a year ago when Hannah came in for her first treatment. I felt like, you know, it would be easier if I had never been born or if I could just be struck dead right now. That would have been an ideal situation for me. Over the years, Hannah says she's tried just about every antidepressant and anti-anxiety drug. The medication Wellbutrin worked okay, but not great. And last year was a particular low point in Hannah's nearly 10-year bout with anxiety and depression. She's 28 now. What it really did to me was made me not trust myself, made me not believe in my own abilities. It was just a lot of grief of feeling like I'm never going to reach my full potential. The pandemic made a bad situation worse. But today, before we head in for her treatment, Hannah's handing out gifts to the nurses and to Dr. Mandel. There are many terrariums she made to show her appreciation. Thank you, thank you, You're thank very you. Welcome. This is like the coolest thing ever. I feel unworthy. You are I very feel, worthy. I feel I needed to uh, 
wear a tie and, and groom better for a gift such as this. All right, sweetie pie, we will get you on back in the okay. treatment room. Okay. The treatment area looks like a traditional operating room, except for a special machine that attaches to two paddles. Getting sleepy? Mm-hmm. Hannah's given general anesthesia, and she has leads or electrodes on her head. Then, in simple terms, Dr. Mandel places two paddles that emit electricity on designated places on her head to hit the right spots in her brain. Then I'm asleep for like 15 minutes, and I wake up and very groggy, and then I'm out of there. It's not exactly that easy. Hannah started off in November, coming to the hospital for treatments three times a week for three weeks, then two times a week, and so on, until she finally tapered down. I started feeling better within the first couple of days. I had to come in to get a COVID test, and I remember one of my nurses, Kayleen, said to me, well, you're very peppy today. And I had never in my life had someone say that I was peppy, and I lost my mind. I called my mom, and I was like, Kayleen said I was peppy. Can you believe that? Hannah's most recent treatment was 12 weeks ago, and after many months, she's seen even more change. For me, it was just like waking up in the morning and actually feeling alive and awake and motivated to get out of bed and do something. Hannah's also been able to stop taking antidepressants. That's not to say ECT is perfect. It's far from it. Hannah, like many who've undergone treatment, has had short-term memory loss. ECT moments, as I call them, and so basically it could just be a situation where I'm having a conversation and then literally forget the next word that I'm trying to say or walk into a room and completely forget what I'm doing and stuff like that. But now that my treatments are spaced further apart, that happens way, way less frequently. Hannah says she still has tough times and will always be a high-strung person. And based on other patients' experiences, she may have to come back at some point for what are called maintenance treatments. But right now, she's pretty pleased with the results, and so is Dr. Mandel. Look at that. Look at this success story. I mean, really, it is remarkable. Dr. Kanoi Mandel joined us in the studio to talk more about ECT. He's a psychiatrist who directs the ECT unit at Long's Peak Hospital in Longmont. Dr. Mandel, welcome to the show. It's nice to be here. Thank you. I understand you're still in the OR. You finished up an ECT treatment just a while ago. And I want to talk about studies in recent years that show more people, including young people, some very young people, struggling with mental health issues. And for many, those got worse during the pandemic. Who should consider ECT? Yeah, that's a great question. So overall, ECT works the best data-wise, in, and it works for a middle group as well. But the best data as far as remission and quickly getting to remission in folks less than 20 and over 60. Definitely the most studied group of folks who have robust ECT responses and tolerate ECT surprisingly well are folks over 60. And you wouldn't think so. You'd think that as we get older, we wouldn't tolerate a medical procedure as well But ECT is so relatively quick. I'm in the brain for eight seconds. Somebody is under and awake from the general anesthesia in three minutes. And there's not a 24-hour exposure 
in the body to something like a medication that's going to go to all sorts of organs and not just the brain. These patients, they have severe depression or anxiety, I imagine. Are these patients where other drugs, therapy just haven't worked? So the big three reasons that somebody ends up in ECD or would benefit the most from ECD are, number one, they've been on multiple medication trials. Interestingly, data after data after data, studies after studies have shown that if somebody has been on three unique medication trials for bipolar disorder or major depressive disorder or a psychotic, primary psychotic disorder, the chances of going into remission, of feeling well with a fourth or more medication trial is down around 7 to 10%, so pretty low. Whereas with ECT, in those same group of folks, you're looking at a 60 to 80% chance of going into remission. So first reason folks uh, really look at ECT are number of medication trials, Second is a strong family history of illness. The more genetics that are involved, the less likely that illness is going to respond to medications, the more aggressive we need to be. And the third is, of course, the severity of symptom. If somebody is having significant death thoughts, suicidality, disability, because they're just not getting out of their house, off their, off their chair, out of their bed, then uh, that's another reason. So those are the big three factors that go in. Now, when you define well, so someone isn't well, um, yeah. what does that mean exactly? Quite simply and quite frankly, and this is something I think that psychiatry has not pushed hard enough, but quite simply and quite frankly, it is remission. So if you go to see an oncologist, a cancer doctor, and the oncologist says, hey, you know what? You have cancer. We're going to treat it. And we're going to get 50% of that cancer gone, maybe 70%. And then we're going to stop because that's good enough. Nobody would say okay to that. They'd be like, well, that's ridiculous. I'm going to die from cancer. So the goal of any medical intervention of any kind is remission. And remission is a state of being indistinguishable from somebody who doesn't have the illness. So you may have major depressive disorder, but if you're in remission, you are indistinguishable from somebody who doesn't have major depressive disorder. It doesn't mean that you're cured. You still need treatment. At that point, the treatment may be ongoing maintenance medication, maybe maintenance CCD, maybe maintenance talk therapy or psychotherapy, but your symptoms are so well controlled, you're indistinguishable from somebody who doesn't have the illness. Would you say ECT is a last resort option for people with anxiety and depression and other mental illness, or it's just another option for treatment? Almost any psychiatrist I know, many physicians I know would go to ECT quick if they know they have a strong family history and they've been on a couple of medication trials and they're severely impacted because nothing works faster than ECT. 
The big negative with ECT is that it's an intensive medical procedure. It needs to be done under general anesthesia for me to be able to tell how I'm directing electricity in the brain. So it's it's a time commitment, and there is a degree of medical procedure tolerability that has to occur. But as far as efficacy, speed of onset, and robust findings, nothing compares to ECT. That said, if I'm starting uh, my course with treatment for major depression, let's say the very first medication with pharmacogenetic testing, with looking at what family members have responded to, with looking at symptomatology, there's a 60% chance of going into remission with an antidepressant plus psychotherapy out of the gate for somebody with major depressive disorder. There's no reason in my mind to start ECT at that point, even if it's an 80% chance because it's significantly more of a pain to do. And I don't think it's worth it as far as the labor involved at that point, unless somebody is severely disabled. So, you know, really, I think one of the problems we run into in my field is I see patients who've been on their 10th, their 11th, their 12th, their 15th medication regimen and they still are just getting referred to ECT. And that makes zero sense whatsoever. These folks have had years and years and years of debility of not reaching remission. And there's no reason for them to suffer like that. They really needed to get referred to ECT much earlier after they failed their third unique trial of medication. You talk about some of the challenges, uh, spending time in a hospital, anesthesia, and there are some adverse side effects, um, memory, um, and I understand it can induce mania in some patients who are prone to that. Tell us about the side effects people should be aware of. Absolutely. So the biggest, biggest hurdle with ECT has always been the induction of cognitive side effects. And that's because the memory, and really it's not cognitive side effects, it's memory side effects. And that's because the structure that drives memory, that's the storer slash facilitator of memory, is right next to the structure that we need to aim at in order to improve mood or psychosis. Now, the big advancement in ECT is modern machines are able to hit what we want to hit and miss what we want to miss much, much better than even machines seven years ago, six years ago. So the rate of cognitive side effects now is markedly reduced. Now, that said, it's always a risk, but there's a lot more that we can do to mitigate that risk if we see it. Roughly... 40% of folks who get ECT are going to have temporary, reversible, short-term memory problems that will go away within six weeks of the start of ECT. 50% of people will have no memory problems at all. 10% of people have significant memory problems. Their memory center, their brain is just too close 
to what I need to aim at. And uh, we usually discontinue ECT in those folks unless there's an absolute clinical improvement and the folks want to continue with it. Um, the other side effects with ECT are, yes, you can induce mania in somebody with an underlying mood disorder that you did not know was bipolar disorder. But that's not necessarily a bad thing in the sense that nothing is as revelatory of an underlying bipolar disorder that may have been mistreated for years as major depressive disorder than ECT. And to stabilize mood, you just need to barrel through with ECT. So ECT, even if it induces mania, is also the treatment for the induction of that mania. We just modify it some and modify the oral medications. Uh, the other side effects are we can easily treat, but they can be annoying like headaches, nausea, muscle aches, uh, but we're good about getting rid of those pretty quick. I'm speaking with Dr. Kanoi Mandel. He's a psychiatrist who treats patients with severe depression and anxiety. Dr. Mandel is at Long's Peak Hospital in Longmont. He directs the ECT unit there. ECT stands for electroconvulsive therapy. You talk about how ECT has improved significantly, especially in recent years. I wonder if some doctors don't realize that and are hesitant to refer people to that kind of treatment. There's also this past kind of bad press over the years. Many refer to the 1975 movie, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, where someone undergoes treatment and, uh, you know, it, it doesn't come across well. So I wonder if folks just don't have the latest understanding of the treatment. Without a doubt. So let's kind of keep things in a historical context. The very first antipsychotic came into FDA approval in 1959. The first antidepressants were after that. They didn't even come into common use until really the mid-60s. So prior to that, with complete old-school non-physiologically based or studied ECT, you had two choices if you were in a hospital, psychiatric hospital. You could wait for years to get better, if that, and live your whole life in a hospital, in an asylum, or you could do the only treatments that were available back then and have a chance to get out. And that was it. There was nothing else to do from that very barbaric base, but nothing else. And for some people better than staying confined in a hospital indefinitely options, you have now modern day ECT where we literally can mimic how one neuron communicates with another. That's been the biggest reason that we've been able to avoid as much side effects with ECT. Prior to recently, we had to overdo. So it's kind of like with radiation oncology. Back in the day, if you had lung cancer, you'd have to irradiate the heck out of that area. You'd hit the spine. You'd hit the ribs. You'd hit the lining of the lung. You'd hit the heart. 
All of that could get radiation burns, the skin. Now, radiation oncology is far more pinpoint and precise. Same with ECT. It sounds like it was a pretty blunt instrument in the past, but talk about the changes you start to see in your patients from when they first come in, you know, to a few months later. Absolutely. So when folks first come in, they're understandably worried, concerned. They're very down. They could be hearing voices. Uh, They could be super irritable. They're just in a short circuit in their brain. And what I mean by that is they have a very limited amount of thoughts, behaviors, and emotions. And they're stuck in that loop, hopelessness, worthlessness, suicidal, psychosis, uh, not sleeping, etc. And the very first things we see is literally somebody appears infinitely calmer or brighter. You literally see nonverbal communications improve. The patient almost always still feels terrible at the beginning, which stinks. I often tell patients, hey, look, the improvement from ECT is going to happen from the outside in. You're going to look better. You're going to move better. You're going to smile more. You're going to walk faster. You're going to be able to engage socially more, but your esteem is still going to be low. Until treatment, uh, approximately seven, eight, that's when we really see the full improvement. Again, ECT is three times a week for three to four weeks. So usually by treatment seven, we really see around 80% of people feel a lot better. As we go over the next few months and we wean down ECT, we start getting people off and away from ECT, we really see a return to life. So we see folks going back to work. We see folks rekindling their relationships with their spouses. We see folks reconnecting and being confident in their parent roles. We see folks, to be quite frank, one of my favorite things to ask patients is when was the last time you had a belly laugh? When you just were like hanging out with friends, family, watching a comedian and just just laughed. Um, And we actually see that more. We see people being able to exercise. We really see people return to complete lives. Dr. Mandel, I think some people listening to this might say this is too good to be true for the patients that it benefits. And, And I wonder what you say to that. I want to be very careful. ECT is not a panacea. I'm very passionate about it. It's not something that everyone ought to do. If you have a group of people who have met the criteria to do ECT, the outcomes are so rewarding and fantastic in 80% of those folks. However, 20% of the people who go through ECT are still going to struggle and we still are going to need to look for ways to fight for them to get improved. There are other burgeoning treatments, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Tell us about some of the other treatments that could work as well. Absolutely. So transcranial magnetic stimulation is a fantastic treatment option. 
it really is great if somebody has a family history of illness, they've failed one or two medication trials, and they're not quite severely debilitated. The positive for transcranial magnetic stimulation is that we can modulate neurons with more nuance than with ECT. The advantage with transcranial magnetic stimulation is that it requires zero anesthesia. There's hardly any side effects. Um, it's time consuming, but the sessions are short. So it's a lot easier to do than ECT, but it just doesn't have the power of ECT as far as getting patients into remission. The second uh, or third besides ECT, big uh, data is with ketamine. The advantage of ECT and ketamine is that you know if you're going to get a response within two weeks. Ketamine is sort of a psychedelic that's been yeah. used recreationally uh, in the past, but is now approved by the FDA to use for depression and anxiety. It's also gotten some bad press because paramedics have used it on folks, um, and right. that's had bad consequences. That's completely different than the way ketamine is used for pain management and for mood disorder management. In those situations, when it's used in a non-anesthetic role, it's given over a 40-minute period of time, if not a little longer, and you're slowly, slowly, slowly exposing the system to a buildup of ketamine. And ketamine is a fascinating pharmacological agent. And when you deliver ketamine in this controlled infusion over time manner, what you see is that you can get significant, profound antidepressant responses, improvement in PTSD, market improvement in pain tolerance, and you know you're going to be a ketamine responder, at least the way we do it, within two weeks, which is good because then you can move on if it's not going to cut it. There's also a lot of uh, press lately about using psychedelics like psilocybin, LSD, to treat depression and anxiety. I know Harvard, Johns Hopkins, Berkeley, a bunch of other schools have started psychedelic centers, UCSF. What's your take on that? So the big, big, big issue in a lot of medicine is the difference between getting somebody better and keeping somebody better. And that's, you know, if you, if you look at like ECT, TMS, ketamine, ECT and ketamine kick off somebody's improvement the fastest. ECT keeps them by far and away the most number of people in remission. Ketamine, TMS around the same. It's unclear, it's unclear. You know, um, there's no doubt that a decent number of folks with major depressive disorder, let's say, will feel a lot better with a dose of psilocybin, with a dose of MDMA or ecstasy, with the dose of LSD. There's no doubt about that. But what happens 
three months, four months from then. I'm glad that there's research going into it, but I'm going to hold my judgment until we see what we call meta-analytical trials and papers where there's enough data that you can collate several different trials together and look at the effect sizes. Although I have heard uh, a lot of people and read some studies where folks report long-term remission from just one uh, kind of session of, say, psilocybin. Absolutely. I mean, that's definitely possible. Matter of fact, I've seen it and I've heard about it. But, you know, that anecdotal evidence is not research trials, right? So I'm not saying that people shouldn't do it. I'm all for people doing whatever they need to do to get into remission that's safe and controlled and under a professional watch. So I'm not knocking it. But as far as being something that we prescribe to a general group of people, we need multiple studies and multiple centers And we just don't have that now. Dr. Mandel, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Kanoi Mandel is a psychiatrist who treats patients with severe depression and anxiety. He's at UC Health Long's Peak Hospital in Longmont. Mandel directs the ECT unit there. If you or someone you know is struggling, you can reach Colorado Crisis Services by texting TALK to 38255. That's 38255. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The introduction to this piece was updated after it was first broadcast to more precisely reflect the experiences that led Hannah Wyatt Sultan to explore ECT. An informed citizenry is at the heart of a dynamic democracy. Thomas Jefferson wrote those words more than 230 years ago. But it's especially true now as we face three questions on our statewide ballots for 2021. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News Director, and CPR News is here to help you be informed and participate in democracy. Even in an off election year like this one, we have your back. Come to CPR.org now for the 2021 Voter's Guide. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. In many school districts, local officials say they typically have to beg people to run for school board. Not this year. There's been a flood of candidates, many of them newcomers. In some cases, they've shifted school board debates. It's also brought money and endorsements from a host of political groups. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. It didn't start in Colorado, this sudden surge of people wanting to run for school board. I got a message for you. From the post-Trump anti-mask furor, a new message emerged from conservative activists nationwide. We are coming for the school boards. That message resonated with some parents. With schools closed, they watched their children struggle at home with online learning, and they turned that frustration onto school board members. We tell our girls every day, your body belongs to you. No one should ever put their hands on you. Many didn't like masks or COVID tests for unvaccinated students. Do I tell her except when the government wants to? Of course, there were parents on the other side. And you know what? They're okay wearing masks because they've been taught that it's not just about them. 
It's about the bigger community. That made for tense school board meetings. School board members were deluged with sharply worded emails. Here's Jeffco board member Stephanie Schooley appealing to an audience of mask opponents. When people come to my house or take pictures of my children or send threatening letters to me in the mail with pictures of my children, it's too much. But the high emotions laid the groundwork for a number of parent-driven groups determined to oust sitting school board members, groups like Guardians of RE4 in Weld County. Conservative political action groups, sometimes with religious affiliations, are endorsing candidates. The other side is, too. Brett Miles of the Colorado Association of School Executives has observed school board races for decades. This feels incredibly different in that it's really about larger national political ideology rather than what we have seen throughout my career. The meat and potatoes of the job of a school board member is anything but hot button. It's delving into the nuts and bolts of school budgets, mileage on aging school buses, and the minutiae of school strategic plans. But as many school districts developed equity plans to make school curriculum more reflective of their diverse student bodies, another issue has dominated some school board races. And we don't need to indoctrinate or legislate. This is an Academy 20 candidate forum in El Paso County. CRT, critical race theory, a graduate-level legal theory holding that systemic racism is embedded in the nation's institutions, that came up several times. Some parents mistakenly believe it's being taught in Colorado schools. But most of the candidates also had problems with DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, efforts to make schools welcoming to all children. DEI is here, it is CRT, and it is at its core level, Marxism. And about stopping all forms of tyranny and abuse on our children. They plant the seeds in our kids' minds, and we as parents... If you've read The Naked Communist, you know exactly what this is. It's designed to divide people so that they could bring about a socialist society. But many candidate forums in Colorado are sticking to traditional school board issues. At a kickoff rally on a crisp autumn morning, a Jeffco teachers union leader leads the crowd in a chant for school board candidates Reed, Varda, and Parker, RVP. They're focusing on strengthening neighborhood schools, meeting the mental health needs of students, and retaining teachers. Differences do emerge in forums on issues like performance-based pay. There are multiple states that do it effectively. Jeffco candidate David Johnson supports paying teachers based on performance metrics like test scores. Former teacher Paula Reed, on the other hand, remembers the tumult that pay model ushered in several years ago. It made teachers angry and resentful of each other. Two opposing slates of candidates have formed in the Jeffco race. Same in Douglas County, where the county Republican Party has endorsed one slate. In others, county Republican parties have pumped money into traditionally nonpartisan races. Mesa County Republican Party Chair Kevin McCarney says teachers' unions, which he described as left-leaning organizations, put thousands of dollars into races. In all honesty, there is no such thing as a nonpartisan race. There are always partisan issues in those races. To be silent is to seed ground that we can't seed anymore. The overt politicization of races is troubling to many. But one silver lining, says Jeffco School Board member Stephanie Schooley. For better or worse, people are paying attention in a very different way on all sides of the spectrum in terms of ideology and issues. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News.
The story now of a murder that seems stranger than fiction. In 2012, Tony Henthorne was pushed off a cliff in Rocky Mountain National Park by her husband, and it wasn't the first suspicious death in his past. The case is the subject of a new docuseries called Wild Crime. National parks are incredibly safe places, but when you have millions of visitors coming through every year, crime will happen. My mom, what's the address of the emergency? My name is Harold Hithorn. I'm in the Rocky Mountain National Park. My wife had fallen. She's in really critical condition. I need an rescue team immediately. I was told to go to Deer Ridge Trailhead. At that time, I thought it was just a tragic accident. A lot of things here don't add up. From the outside looking in, Tony and Harold's marriage looks like the perfect life. Every year on their anniversary, Harold would plan a trip. The phone's rang in, and it's my brother. My brother said, Tony's been in an accident. She was gone. Now we have an investigation we have to conduct. There were small things that didn't totally add up. It was an obscure area. It was just so steep. He said he was doing CPR the whole time. Her lipstick was not smudged. There was something more to the story. Most people didn't know that Harold was married before. This is two wives for Harold that have died now. And that was very suspicious. Author Caleb Hannon explores that murder in Rocky Mountain National Park in his book, The Accidents. We spoke in 2018. Caleb, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Having written this book, what strikes you most about the case? You know, what's interesting is uh, now that the book's out, I'm actually being able to read reviews by by readers. And I'm not sure if this is a good or a bad thing, but the number of readers who review it as if it were fiction, um, that's the most surprising thing to me. We did our best to put up at front. This is a true story. This is true crime. And yet people are still, I guess, disbelieving of it. Let's talk about the murder. Uh, It was back in September of 2012, and the couple was hiking to celebrate their 12th anniversary. Tony Henthorne was a doctor really loved by her colleagues and patients. You describe her as shy and kind-hearted, and Tony seems constantly to be overshadowed by her husband. Harold Henthorne's controlling, um, but in the book, he also comes across as, as sort of goofy, not someone you'd suspect to be a murderer. Talk a bit about how he appeared to other folks. It sort of depended on who you were. If you just met him for the first time, he could appear to be extremely charismatic and extremely bright. If you knew him for a long time and you were family or friends, you ha- you saw that goofy side or you sort of learned to just kind of ignore 75% of the things he said because he was always talking. He was always the expert. Um, but he appeared to everyone who knew him to just be this massive success, this massive, massively successful business person. So there was an element of, well, I guess I should listen to him because clearly he's he's succeeded in this one arena. And so, yes, goofy and kind of a know-it-all, um, but also just appeared to be a guy who kind of had everything. Tony Henthorne was from a wealthy family in Mississippi. What was the family's initial impression of him? You know, from the start, the Bertolets, her family, were, you know, they they just thought Harold was kind of weird. You know, he was a northerner. He was constantly talking, constantly bragging. 
But the Bertolet's impressions of him were, they were really tough to suss out because almost immediately after the wedding, um, Harold sort of stole Tony away from Mississippi, which is where she'd lived her entire life, and really exerted a level of control that was sort of phenomenal. Um, her family was not allowed to talk with her on the phone. They were living in Colorado. They were living in Colorado. They were living here. They couldn't talk on the phone together without Harold also being on the line. It was hard for them to get to know their son-in-law just because um, they were far away. And also, he just kept communications to a minimum. So describe their relationship a little bit. Um, You know, how did other folks uh, see it? It's a little difficult because some of the people who I spoke with knew the Henthorns through church. And um, so their view of things was that uh, Tony and Harold were were observant and they were pretty strict about it. And so from their perspective, the fact that Harold did all the talking wasn't terribly unusual. It still struck struck some of them as a little bit strange. But for people who didn't have that perspective, I mean, Harold was domineering. He was insulting towards Tony, even though she was successful in her own right. She was, you know, the ophthalmologist for the, the Colorado Avalanche. She, she had a good job. Um, so everyone who crossed paths with them sort of noticed these traits and noticed the fact that Tony, at least when she was with Harold, was demure and, and often just kept quiet. So you write about this suspicious incident um, that happens before the murder. Um, it's about a, a cabin in Colorado that Harold owned, um, and it was even before his marriage to Tony. And at one point, the couple's there, staying there, and Tony gets badly injured. Describe what happened. Yeah, so it's the middle of the night, and their daughter Haley is asleep inside. And the story that Harold tells is that he had asked Tony to help him clear some debris off the porch. What ends up happening is that uh, Tony is struck in the back of the head with a piece of lumber that had fallen. She was below the level of the porch. And uh, it was a pretty serious injury. She had numbness in her fingers. She had extremes amount of pain in her neck. She actually told her mom later if she hadn't moved a split second before, she really thought that the piece of wood could have killed her. Um, This was roughly a year before she actually did die. Um, And it it was a traumatizing incident for her. It wasn't really known to the Bertolet family until months later. Harold, because he controlled this communication, made it seem as if it was just this minor thing, when in fact it was it was nearly deadly. Can you talk about the day of the murder? Um, how did how did things start out? The day of the murder was the twelfth anniversary of Tony and Harold's marriage, and they always did something special on their anniversary weekend. It was also one of the busiest days in Rocky Mountain National Park, and it started out relatively normal, except for one fact. Um, So there was a a woman staying behind with their daughter who was babysitting her that day. And the, the things that weren't normal is that the night before, Harold had sent dozens upon dozens of pictures to all these family and friends, sort of out of the blue of him and Tony and him and the people he was sending it to, just this rush of of excitement and social media, I don't know, uh, engagement. And then with the the babysitter, he actually allowed Tony to talk with Haley on the phone without him on the phone hmm. for a few minutes, which had never happened. The babysitter had worked with this family for years. That had never happened. And it struck her as strange at the time. And of course, after the accident struck her as even stranger. So he was trying to put up sort of this uh, facade to his family and friends about perhaps how close their relationship with, and he did want to give his daughter one last chance to talk to her mom. That's what it appears to be, which is 
I don't know, it's about as cold and, and heartless as you can imagine. But yes, there, there was this reminder to everyone he knew, look how great of a dad, how great of a husband I am. So he takes her to this remote cliff. And as we find out, he, he pushes her off the cliff. Um, and um, investigators find some pretty damning evidence. What do they discover? Well, they discover a lot. I mean, there's no shortage of things that Harold did or, or left behind. But possibly the most damning is that um, a sort of routine check of his car by one of the National Park Service investigators, they discovered this map uh, on one of the interior doors. And when they opened it up, they saw a large X basically at the place where Tony had fallen 140 feet. Um, and to give you a sense of where this was in Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, one of the rangers who'd worked in the park for decades said later that at most maybe 10 people ended up in this one spot in the park. And all of those people would be like very, very skilled mountain climbers, which Tony and Harold, not at all. Mm. Um, so, so not a place where you would just find yourself. Couldn't he have marked where she fell after there are so many explanations. Well, no, not after, because he didn't actually get into his Jeep after she fell. Mm -hmm. But it could have just been a place where he had decided to end up. There are lots of, of innocent explanations for so many things that Harold did. It's really the volume of things he did. And, of course, the thing we haven't spoken about, which is the death of his first wife, too. Yeah, they also found out um, that Harold Henthorne had purchased several life insurance policies on Tony. And the really eerie part is the case is similar to another death, Harold Henthorne's first wife, Lynn. He collected quite a bit of insurance money when Lynn Henthorne died. What were the circumstances behind her death? Lynn died in 1995, and she died just south of here, uh, just south of Sedalia, on a dark, deserted road late at night um, when she and Harold were supposedly trying to change a tire. Lynn was crushed to death underneath their Jeep. Um, and that was an accident that the whole family knew about. Everybody knew about. But everybody had been told something different. And most people had been told it was a car accident, which you and I and anybody else would presume to mean a crash. Right. And in fact, it was one of the stranger incidents that you know first responders or cops had ever been witness to. Nothing like the car accident we would have presumed. Because it, it fell on her. The car fell on it her. It pinned her underneath. Thousands of you know pounds of metal and steel pinned her for long enough that it, it basically killed her, choked her. There were several red flags uh, regarding Lynn Henthorne's death in 1995. Douglas County Sheriff's investigated, and they ruled the death an accident. Why didn't they pick up on any of the evidence? You can... The best person to ask is actually a guy who retired, and I spoke to him for the first time. No one had spoke to him yet. His name is Detective Dave Weaver, and he was asked to reinvestigate the case. Douglas County at the time was small. It hadn't had its population boom. There were, I believe, five detectives to cover 800 square miles. These were incredibly young, incredibly green cops who now make up the captains and the sergeants who, who run the whole patrol today. They were inexperienced. They came to the scene thinking it was an accident, and they viewed everything that happened from that point forward through that lens. And even Detective Dave Weaver, who's friends with these people, said it was it was botched from the beginning. Um, it was a case that could have ended things then. It, it could have saved the life of Tony and, and years of pain and confusion. And um, it was just a really terrible investigation. So... 
Tony's murder was in 2012. It took a while for Harold to be arrested. Um, Tony's family had suspicions about his role in her death. Uh, some of the couple's friends did, too. Um, why did it take him you know, so long to be arrested? Well, it's one of the things that the prosecutor said at his trial, which is absolutely true. Harold did so many things wrong after the fact, but he did one thing right in both cases. He went to places where there were no witnesses. These deaths happened in extremely remote places. And he learned from the first death, uh, the death of his first wife, Lynn, because there were some people who were passerbys. They drove past and they saw his odd behavior and he maybe thought, you know, that could have put him away. And so with, when it came to Tony, he just went to a place where there was no chance that anybody was going to see what was happening. And at that point, it was just his word against everybody else's and no one else was there. Harold Henthorne was never convicted in his first wife's death. Uh, he got life in prison without parole for the murder of Tony Henthorne. He denies that he killed her and he lost an appeal in the case. What was the basis of his appeal? Yeah, it, you know, I'm not a legal expert, but there was a, a really tremendously interesting thing that happened in his first trial, which the prosecution argued as hard as they could that we should be allowed to bring up both his first wife's death and the incident at the cabin at the trial for Tony's death. And a judge uh, allowed that to happen. That was the basis for his appeal. His lawyer basically said, and this is true, it was an enormously prejudicial to the jury to hear about those cases because it made them see Harold in a completely different light. And it did. But an appeals court said that doesn't matter. There's actually a doctrine uh, that's established that allows us to do that. Um, And so he lost. Caleb, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Caleb Hannon is the author of The Accidents. We spoke in 2018. There's a new docuseries about the case called Wild Crime. It's available on Hulu from ABC News. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.